Listening to the flip side with Noah Filipiak, connecting the reality of the gospel to the grit of life. You can support the podcast at patreon.com slash Noah Filipiak or at noahfilipiak.com slash give. What up, what up, flip upon my welcome to episode 51 of the flip side podcast. Last episode was our big 50th episode, and wow, what a celebration we had. Check it out if you haven't yet. If you have, you've probably listened. uh, You've probably gone through a few minutes of Noah's rant, and it was all you could handle. It is five hours of Noah's rant. It is every Noah's rant that has ever existed, and you, we strung them all together for you to absurdly celebrate the 50th anniversary, not anniversary, the 50th episode of The Flip Side. So we're on episode 51. We're looking toward episode 100. With that in mind, I am going to try. It is not going to be easy for me. This is like quitting smoking for someone who's tried to quit smoking. That's not me. I just I just hear it's hard. I'm going to really try something new, turning over a new leaf. This podcast is a mixture of silliness and seriousness. And I know that some of you listen for the seriousness. You like the interviews. You like the content when I teach and those sorts of things. And you really don't like the silliness stuff. And so what I'm going to try to do is cut much quicker to the chase at the beginning of the episode, do less introductory, less silliness at the beginning, and jump right into the interview or the teaching content. And then at the end, we will not only do Noah's rant, but we will also save all of the other silly commentary, if that's the right word to use. The light commentary, the banter. We'll save that for the end for people who like that. And for those of you that don't, you can just sign off when the serious stuff is done. So with that, I will talk a little bit more about Noah's rant and that episode and all those sorts of things. I will do that at the end of this episode. So hang in there for that. Hang in there for lots of hopefully laughs and lightness if you like that sort of thing. Uh, Let me tell you though about my guest today. I am interviewing Terrence Lester. He is the author of the brand new book, When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together from InterVarsity Press. Terrence is a speaker, activist, author, and thought leader in the realm of systemic poverty. He is the founder of Love Beyond Walls, a not-for-profit organization focused on poverty, awareness, and community mobilization. His campaign, Love Sinks In, providing hand-washing stations for the homeless, has been featured on Good Morning America, CNN, NBC, MLK50, and TV1, and in essence, Reader's Digest, Black Enterprise, and Upworthy. Oh yeah, and also the Flipside podcast. I'm looking forward to when the Flipside gets added to Terrence's bio right in between CNN and NBC. So, 
Uh, looking forward to interviewing Terrence today. We are going to have an awesome conversation. I have read his book, When We Stand. I highly recommend it. So, hey, let's do something new. Let's jump in to the interview with Terrence, and I promise I'll be back on at the end. I'll give some of my thoughts about the interview and then some light banter commentary that some of you will appreciate. So with that, let's bring Terrence onto the flip side. All right. Well, Terrence, I, I've read your bio already. Uh, uh, prior to you coming on to the show, I want you to know I did read your book, When We Stand. As I was reading it, I really thought, I really like this guy. I, I'm really looking forward to getting to hang out with him a little bit on Zoom. So, man, thanks so much for coming on to the flip side. Noah, thank you. I'm really excited about being here. And, man, uh, I'm really humbled that you have actually taken time to read through When We Stand. Absolutely, man. I loved it. I read it, took a whole bunch of notes. I have like 100 questions, way more than we can get to. Uh, so we'll, we'll do the best we can. So yeah, man, uh, I loved it. It was full of wisdom. I, I really felt like it was a very approachable book for anybody. It was an encouragement to me as someone doing justice ministry or justice work, whatever you'd want to call it, but also a very approachable book for somebody that's kind of kicking the tires, kind of wondering what's going on in this justice world and the church and the Bible and I really love that. I thought it was really accessible. So well done. Man, thank you. Uh, I really try to work really hard to communicate to people who were, one, um, burned out mm. from social media trauma. I mean, uh, at any given moment, we can pick up our smartphones and uh, be traumatized by the world's problems. And in many ways, uh, that can create this sense of apathy and paralyzation that happens in, you know, the lives and hearts of many people. So I was thinking about that group of people, but I was also thinking about uh, Christians specifically who have been in church and have had very distorted views of what justice is yeah. and have like just played the sidelines. Mm. Uh, not little, not not really uh, having an orthopraxy uh, of their faith, you know, asking themselves, how do I actually live this out every single day? I think the church uh, traditionally has done a really great job as you at, 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 uh, for using um, charitable moments mm -hmm. uh, to uh, to affirm itself, but not really adopting the approximate uh, and. Uh, presence that's really needed to transform communities. And so um, really speaking to those two groups of people. Yeah, man. Well, let's start with the first group. Let's start with social media, social media exhaustion, fatigue, where, where you're bombarded on your feed with, I mean, literally around the world, right? Around the world, there's there's a, a crisis happening and it shows up on your feed. And then, and then locally, domestically, uh, there's a crisis happening and it shows up on your feed and there's these injustices. And for someone like myself, I have a heart that's wired to want to help. I have a heart that's wired to want to do something. And it, it can, it can just become exhausting, right? When you, you try like what you, you become, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, an inch deep and a mile wild, a mile wild and an inch deep, right? Spread, spread yourself thin. But then you, you have a bunch of people that just, they just tune it out instead. They just say, no, I can't do that. It's, it's too dark. It's too depressing or, or whatever, or just, or just apathy. 
what what are your thoughts for listeners, you know, right now that are listening that might find themselves in one of those two camps? Yeah. Man, you know, firstly, I think uh, we really need to talk about what social media trauma does to mental health. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you are constantly being bombarded with things that are potentially traumatizing, uh, it can cause anxiety. Uh, it can cause situational depression. Yeah. Uh, it can uh, lull you into a state of sorrow and grief. And those are very real emotions. And I think uh, if people are dealing with those types of emotions, it is best to not even think about justice work, but to think about moving uh, yourself into a space of caring for yourself. I think uh, healthiness is the top priority. Um, you know, I'm all for advocating for uh, people going to therapy and uh, really addressing some of the issues that may be deeply rooted within their hearts. And so um, I'm also uh, a a champion of people finding safe spaces, uh, friendships, communities where they can open up and talk about issues that they may not share with other people because the real uh, fact is uh, when you experience trauma, sometimes you're the only one that is sitting with the trauma. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, like you're having these conversations within and you're not really expressing yourself. So I, I have to bring that up, um, that if you are feeling any of those things, that you should be encouraged and, and um, not be ashamed to to seek help. Yeah. Um, but then there's this group where, you know, you get really overwhelmed and you just don't think if I offered anything, it will not make a difference. And that is an absolute lie. I think we have been wired to see injustice uh, from the 30,000 foot view, as opposed to seeing what can I do right in front of me. Um, Obviously we wish there was a, a magic switch on the wall. We could walk over to the wall and just turn off injustice. Uh, But it doesn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. It happens when we realize that our contributions, no matter how small connected with the contributions of others, creates the tapestry and the fabric of social change. And that's one of the positions that I'm taking in the book, that real justice happens in community that what you bring to the table is needed, that you are needed, that God needs you uh, to get involved. And I don't necessarily think it's a matter of willingness uh, because there are a lot of willing people. I think it's a matter of availability. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a difference between being willing and being available. And I don't think people have created the type of margin in their lives to actually be available to do the work. Mm -hmm. And then that last group, Uh, that you spoke about. Um, I think those people still uh, should seek community. I think community is the life source that God intended for us uh, to be a part of, right? Um, That when you are in the proximity of other people, even if you uh, feel empty yourself or you don't feel any inspiration or you don't 
uh, know how you should get involved or you feel skeptical about getting involved, the very fact that you are proximate to people who are active does something to you. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's use that idea of community to kind of bridge over to the the second piece of, of your of your first uh, thought and answer about about the church. So uh, and and this is funny. I, I'm thinking of a conversation I had a, a week ago. Uh, I'm white, obviously talking to a black friend of mine and I was talking about the church and just using the word the church. You know, the church doesn't do a lot of justice work. The church doesn't do a lot of justice work. And he was actually confused. He's a little bit younger guy. He's in his early 20s. And he goes, oh, that's kind of that's new to me. He's like, I've always seen the church doing justice work. My uncle's church, you know, man, just that's all. They're always talking about justice work, justice work. And I, and I caught myself and realized that my, my white lens calling the church the church. I really meant the white church. And I neglected to uh, to identify the black church really has been doing justice work for a very long time yes. and doing a great job. And the uh, Latinx church uh, has been doing justice work for a very long time because they are the marginalized people and it is their daily experience. And so any pastor worth his or her salt uh, will be talking and doing justice work right because it's it's the it's the oppression that that the congregation themselves is facing so so let me just catch myself to say there was my own white uh privilege or supremacy lenses on what the church even is uh, then let me let me kind of back up then and and so when i when i look at the question and say what are the Two, it's, I think it's a two-sided question. There's sort of the negative and the positive. The negative, uh, what are the barriers? What are the barriers that have stopped what I was going to say, the church, but really it's the white church. I mean, and I think we can just be honest and say we live in a very segregated society, a, a society that, I mean, I don't want to get into it here. I guess I'll take up all the time with how laws and redlining and all these things. I mean, we have white suburbs and we have we have inner cities that are predominantly populated by people of color, and there's there's vast inequities between these two communities. And you have churches, right? So so churches are put in the white suburbs, and therefore white suburban people. And so uh, let's let's just start there. To a degree, we can say, okay, you're born into that. A lot of people listening, probably most of my audience listening, attends those churches. I'm not I'm not villainizing or demonizing any of that. So let me just start there. So let's let's say question number 1, what are the barriers that have stopped the suburban white church from doing justice work? And then on the positive side, what are some steps that uh the suburban white church can do to engage in justice work as a church? Mm. Brother Wow, you said a mouthful. Dude, and... I'm sorry. No, I'm, gu- it, I'm guilty. It, man, I I think it's uh, needed and it's very profound. Man, <clears throat> I am constantly asked about how does my faith connect to the work of justice, or how can I reconcile uh, uh, my faith and social justice work? And you clearly stated it. I am a black man. I'm living in America, mm-hmm. and yet I'm a Christian. I've never had the privilege hmm. of separating my blackness from my faith. Hmm. And 
man, I was, I really realized that when I was working on staff as a, pa- as a pastor at two different churches, I was pastoring at a predominantly white church a few Sundays out of the month and a historically black church. And the worlds were completely different. Um, when I was in this historically black church, um, a part of the liturgy or the worship experience or the sermon moment or the sermonic moment was talks about issues of injustice, whether it was uh, law enforcement officers that killed uh, black and brown people that affected um, persons within the church and uh, racially traumatized them, uh, whether we were praying against gentrification happening uh, surrounding the local church or uh, just the issues that would uh, come up related to injustices. And that was my expression or experience being in the black church. But then I would be in a predominantly white church and something would happen in society and culture and there was no mention of it. Mm-hmm. Or if there was any mention of it, um, you know, I had I would have some of my white friends ask me, Terrence, like, why is there such an uproar? <laughs> you know, and it's like, I started to see this disconnect in understanding the experience or the world of persons who are actually affected by uh, indifference and the suffering and the oppression. Um, and it grieved my heart uh, in many ways. And I still, uh, even talking about this mm. uh, with you, I, I feel the emotions in my body right now, um, just thinking about uh, what happened to Breonna Taylor mm-hmm. and George Floyd in this past year. We're in the week of the celebratory moment of Juneteenth. And if people don't know about what Juneteenth is, um, it's when uh, enslaved persons in Galveston, Texas, received news of General Order Number 3, uh, that declared that they were free uh, and on June 19th, 1865. Well, most people ask, well, why is this important? The Emancipation Proclamation was signed, right? Um, and it's like, yeah, it was signed September 22nd, 1862. Mm. And these persons received this information that they were free three years later. Can you even imagine having a delayed freedom? Mm. And here's the thing, uh, we just recently uh, witnessed uh, the, the making of a federal holiday out of this moment in history. And it took almost 200 years to even have this moment recognized. Yeah. So there's always been this delayed sense of freedom. And to answer your question directly, I think one of the, one of the things is uh, if we are truly seeking to follow Jesus, we also have to be Uh, understanding that Jesus was a person full of compassion. And I I haven't seen much empathy. Uh, I think one of the things that I've seen mostly from some of my white peers is that when things arise, instead of using empathy as an invitation to be present with understanding, um, instead they use the moment for judgment. Mm. 
They use the moment for attack. They use the moment to push away from the table instead of leaning in to understand the sufferings and the pains of their brothers and sisters who may come from a different social location. Let me ask you, like I want to ask you, have you been listening? Mm. Because listening uh, gives you an opportunity to be proximate to your neighbor. And when Jesus is talking about being proximate to your neighbor and loving your neighbor as you love yourself, he's talking about loving people who are not like you. Yeah. And here's the thing, uh, Noah, when you love your neighbor, that means you also have to love the neighborhood the neighbor emerges from. <laughs> but not only love the neighborhood, you have to be concerned about the issues that that neighborhood faces. Mm-hmm. We're talking about loving the whole neighbor. And I think the other part of that, too, is breaking up this routine of, uh, uh, you know, just doing the same things that you're accustomed to. Like I had one person ask me earlier, what what are some of the ways I can break outside of my bubble? And I'm like, yo, like when was the last time you went to a coffee shop that you, you didn't, you weren't familiar with that you literally uprooted yourself out of your comfort zone and intentionally put yourself in the rhythmic way in communities and in spaces where you were the minority or you were going to sit at someone else's table. Uh, We do a lot of invitations to tables and this whole sense of diversity thing has been kind of hijacked because it's not necessarily about including people. It's about having people at the table just for marketing purposes. Right. We got to push away from that. And I, I, I said a lot in response, man, but I'm just speaking from my heart because appreciate it. I see the distance so much. Yeah, dude, I'm a bad interviewer. That's all it is. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm bad at interviewing. I asked you like three questions at once, man. So thanks for uh, thanks for rolling with that. That was really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, something I've observed in in that is as a pastor who's who's for me I, I'm, I'm passionate about the bible you know i'm passionate about jesus i'm passionate about his kingdom and 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 people yeah. following him and there's a lot of things that you just talked about that are that are biblical like we could just we could we could back and forth just go sermon after sermon you know we could we can look at the good samaritan and we, we yes. you know we, we can look at um why jesus chose a samaritan <laughs> to teach about <laughs> loving neighbor Yes. To a Pharisee. He's talking to Pharisees, you know, yes. Jew to Jew and uses the Samaritan as the example. I mean, we could go we we could do this and it would be. And, and so where, where I get frustrated and, and I'm sure for you, too, as I think about that, that obstacle question is I think that politics and the language of politics, there's all of this this rhetoric around politics. There's these buzzwords and people, honestly, I think people, and, and, and again, I'm speaking from my context. So, so I'm predominantly thinking of people like me. I'm predominantly yeah. thinking of white folks uh, in the suburb. And I think it happens on both sides of the aisle. I can just only speak of what sort of my, my experience is. I know people watch way too much uh, political news. They watch way too much of their favorite talking head, whether that's Republican or Democrat. I want to. I want to be even here because yeah. all of politics uh, is fallen and broken. 
Um, but we watch our favorite talking head or we listen to their podcast and they fill our minds with what to think about when George Floyd gets murdered or what, what to yeah. think about when Philando Castile gets murdered and the automatic responses that we are to have about certain buzzwords. And if you, if you hear a buzzword, whether it's black lives matter or critical race theory, these are buzzwords that we hear. And then our mind is like literally pre-programmed to say what that talking head on TV uh, or the podcast told us to say. So I say all this, I know some listeners I'm ruffling their feathers right now. And, and I say it to say, I think a hindrance that's happened in the church, and I just, I think it's a work of Satan. I'll go that far to say it. <laughs> I, I think he's used politics, the whole arena, the whole show, the whole. And, and, and don't don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying don't be political because I hear a lot of white folks say that too. Oh, I'm not gonna say anything about racial justice because I'm not political. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying yeah. things that are very biblical things that are very much of Jesus and, frankly, God of the Old Testament, you know, uh, the, the injustices and things we see. These are just biblical conversations. And then because of the political machine, uh, we no longer can talk about them as biblical issues. Now they become political issues. And we get so passionate about our camp and defending our camp that we in the church can no longer, in a sermon, talk about real issues facing people mm-hmm. of color because we're labeled as being political or we're labeled as replacing mm-hmm. the gospel with, with uh, social you know, justice or whatever. So I guess my, my question is, is just how, how have you seen, let's just talk about the culture of politics. I've gotten myself into enough trouble here. Um, how have you seen the culture of politics get in the way of the church's ability to care about justice biblically? I mean, gosh, man. Uh, I think the the culture of politics is antithetical of the life and witness of Jesus. Um, I mean, gosh, uh, you can sit in front of a television all day, and what you're talking about is confirmation bias. Yeah, and listen to all of the talking talking heads that. Um, stroke your a rhetorical ego, right, uh, so to speak. And at the end of the day, uh, Jesus will say, you know, uh, have you loved the least of these? Uh, have you been concerned about your neighbor? Um, when he's given the Sermon on the Mount and talking through the be- Beatitudes, he's not talking about blessed are those policymakers that blah, 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 or blessed are those who live in the, um, you know, gated communities or blessed. He's, he's saying he, he's centering um, the reason he came to the earth, which was to bring good news to those who were poor, weary, and broken. And uh, the gospel within itself is countercultural, and uh, it will challenge the core of any political belief, no matter where you land on what side of the aisle, he is calling you to the carpet. And so for me, I think uh, the whole culture of politics clouds people's uh, judgment of how to actually live like Jesus in the moment is what I'm saying. Um, Because the same neighbor that you may hold judgment against 
because you've heard some rhetoric, Jesus is going to ask you to go closer. <laughs> uh, the same person that you may stand and hold judgment against based upon what you've heard, uh, Jesus is going to say, um, have you, uh, you know, uh, become proximate with the, the way that we look at the historical Jesus in the text, right? Um, he's always going to to err on the side of what God's real expression of love is. And I think that challenges all of us. Uh, so it, it clouds your mind, but it also, um, I think it, it robs us from bringing the kingdom of God here now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, kingdom come now. Uh, it keeps us from standing together and making issues that strip people's um, lives down where they can't reach their full potential in Jesus. Um, it keeps us from like really addressing those issues together um, so those persons can uh, flourish in the life that God has for them, you know. Um, it keeps us from loving our neighbor uh, fully because we are always, you know, holding that card in our back pocket and just in case we need to pull it out and uh, separate ourselves some more yeah. from the conversation or from people. Yeah. And I, I think that needs to uh, to stop. That's why I try to stay as close as possible to the life of Jesus, because sometimes the way that Jesus operated will look like justice uh, when fully lived out in today's society. Mm, mm. I love that picture of looking at Jesus's life. I, I think I think my tradition, so you know the kind of white evangelical tradition has, has emphasized a lot of a lot of Paul, a lot of Paul's theology and that's great. Mm. That's a really good thing. But we sort of neglected three years of Jesus' actual life, like Jesus' actual teachings and, and the modeling that he did. And I think, I think there was always a fear growing up, an, a fear that I observed of we never wanted— we were so focused on salvation by, by grace alone, not by works, that we forgot about verse 10 of that same passage, Ephesians 2, that uh, where God's handiwork— uh, prepared in advance by him for the good works that, that we were to do. So the, the saving faith uh, through grace, we're like, no, we're not saved by works. It says it right there. But the very next verse says you, it's so that you can go out and do good works. So anyway, <laughs> I just, I've, I've just noticed that we, 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 we polarize, right? It's like one or the other. And I love what you said about just staying as close to Jesus' life as possible. Because what what Christian can really argue with that? We're, we're there's, fi- there's no Paul without Jesus. <laughs> That's right. I mean, in yeah. systematic theology, you know, you go from theology to eschatology. Well, right there in the center is Christology. Yeah. And uh, one of my seminary professors would it used to say that all of it <laughs> revolves around Christ. You know, <laughs> he is the chief cornerstone. And, and um, if that is the case, I want to follow Jesus. Um, I want my life to be a reflection of the love and sacrifice and compassion and witness of Jesus. And when I am staying close to Jesus, I get a chance to um, see other people as being 
a part of the beloved community. I get a chance to extend tables instead of building higher walls. Mm. Um, And I also get a chance to make myself vulnerable to be seen as well, which, you know, in many cases in some theological circles, you know, it's easier for people to stand at a distance and talk about other people without having themselves uh, be seen as well. Mm. And I think uh, true community is also about being in a community where you are seeing others, but you're also making yourself vulnerable to be seen as well. Yeah. Well, the way you phrase that, it does, it reminds me of Jesus, how he, he was proximate with people. He was proximate with broken people, marginalized people. And then you, you, you contrast that with Pharisees. They weren't, you know, they, they stayed in the synagogue. They had a social hierarchy. They were an elite people group. And so they did not associate with the, the lower marginalized class. And in fact, when Jesus did associate with them, they all looked at him and said, there is a glutton and a drunkard, you know, who, who hangs out with tax, uh, tax collectors and sinners. And man, it's so easy to point fingers at the Pharisees. And yet, if you look at that modeling of the three years of Jesus' life, um, man, I, I want the Holy Spirit to do the convicting. I don't, I don't want to be the one saying, you know, yeah, church, that's you, right? <laughs> I mean, we got to ask if Jesus showed up today, we got to keep coming back to that. If he incarnated today, the same way he did in the first century, if he came as a carpenter, he came as a, a day laborer in the, a poor class of society, who 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 would he who would he be with who would he be hanging with and and then, what <laughs> what I mean, la- wow man you get me going what labels would the church be giving him the church would be labeling him and that's when i go back to the politics thing i'm not trying to bash people who like politics and are interested in politics the problem is politics feeds you these labels and jesus would get labeled something he would be as something by the talking heads and, you know, we know Jesus. It wouldn't bother him. He would just keep going and keep modeling what it means to love and to be proximate with marginalized people. And I just think, man, we've got to do that exercise today. We've got to say, does my life look like Jesus's? Yeah. If Jesus were here today, what would he be doing? Am I doing those things? Am I doing anything close to those things? Right. If not, I mean, you, you can you can. You can click off this podcast. You can say, oh, Noah is so judgmental or Terrence is so judgmental. And I don't get that vibe from you. I just think I'm saying a little things like that, that someone could say that. And be like, okay. Or you could just pause and really go, Holy Spirit, examine my heart. Yes. <laughs> yes. Jesus, show, show, me the, show me the way. Show me your life and, and show me where. I think that's what grace is. Grace is saying, I don't measure up. Jesus, give me your grace and now help me, help me to obey you. Help me to do, you know, to do the things that you say to do. So, mm. man, boom. Bro, this is, this is so profound. And I, I mean, I have chills uh, talking about the importance of, of Jesus's life because not only did Jesus spend time with those on the margins, Jesus himself and his humanity was the person who was on the margins. Yeah. Um, Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, does a really great job of describing Jesus as being someone who was born poor underneath Roman oppression, and he was a minority. 
Um, I mean, gosh, man, in the, the book of Matthew, we see Herod sending out a decree to kill all the firstborn males, right? An angel of the, of the Lord has to come and warn Jesus's family. Jesus's family has to uproot and move to another part of the region. Jesus himself was displaced. So Jesus, when uh, the Hebrew writer says that we, ha we don't have a high priest that can't empathize and sympathize with our earthly sufferings, man, that's deep. That Jesus also identifies with those who are on the margins so much so that his love is shared towards those um, who are also oppressed and experiencing injustice as well. And I think we do a really poor job at, at in the church sometimes as using Jesus as a weapon hmm. and not using Jesus as someone that identifies with those who are broken, broken and, 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 and um, creating an invitation to extend the Lord's table. Yeah. Man. Yeah. 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 I love your table imagery and it reminds me and I, and it's important to say that, it wasn't either or for Jesus. He uh, mm. he ministered to Pharisees. He ministered to uh, you know Paul was a Pharisee, and and um, you look at um, even you know Zacchaeus, Matthew. They're they're tax collectors, so they're they're a weird a weird crew where they're they're um, but they they were wealthy. Uh, they they were wealthy, and they were they were in in bed with the Romans. Uh, you know, and and they would have been hated by by many in the marginalized side of things. And so, Jesus had this beautiful thing going where he was he was he was doing his thing, and he invited everybody into it. Now, his harshest words were to the Pharisees, who who rejected him. Uh, but he also he the Pharisees were members of the first church. They were Pharisees in the church. Yeah. In fact, P Pharisee Paul was the church planter. You know, and so you go. Yeah. He, he didn't come to have rich church, poor church. He came, he didn't come to have Jew church, Gentile church. He came to have church. And man, we could learn a lot from that. I think we, had, we could learn a lot from that today. Yeah, I mean, and that's the beautiful thing about the Lord's table, man. Everybody has a seat. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I think we need to do a better job at ensuring that that is true that everyone has a seat um and we need to move away from creating exclusive communities is what i'm getting at that we need to be about the whole community um specifically i do work and advocate on behalf of people experiencing homelessness and poverty and one of the most heartbreaking things that i have witnessed um, is how um, I've seen Christians or people who are a part of the family of God worship a savior on Sunday who experienced acute homelessness when he had his earthly uh, ministry going uh, and then would in turn walk past a person experiencing homelessness on the street, looking down on them, mm. um, not affirming the Imago Day that even exists uh, in persons who don't have an address. And I like to oft oftentimes tell uh, my brothers and sister, sisters in Jesus 
that just because a person doesn't have an address does not mean that they're not your neighbor, mm. which is uh, deeply profound. That So when we talk about the Lord's table and we talk about the life and witness of Jesus, yes, he ministered to all, but he also ensured that everyone had a seat. Um, and I think that is the message that we need to really embody, that when we talk about community, we need to be about the whole community, not just parts of the community. When we talk about uh, going out to extend uh, God's love, we need to talk about God's love being extended to all uh, persons. Um, and I think that's the message that you just uh, lifted up, and it, it, it warms my heart. Well, thank you. And I love what you're doing. I love that you're modeling that. I love that you're living that and you're helping others live into that. Let me let me shift gears here. And we'll I, I meant to ask this at the beginning and uh, or near the beginning. So we've been in some deep water, some 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 deep, some deep questions. Uh, just let's pause for a second and um, tell the audience about Love Beyond Walls. And I know uh, Love Sinks In is a part of Love Beyond Walls, but uh, those are two things you talk about in When We Stand, and just kind of give give our audience uh, a bit of context of, of what it is that you're leading and doing on a regular basis. Yeah, so Love Beyond Walls is a nonprofit organization, and uh, we're based in Atlanta, Georgia. I founded it almost eight years ago uh, alongside my wife. We see it as a ministry, and oftentimes we get a chance to um, see it as the church, um, uh, in, in action. Uh, and the reason I say that is because, uh, our organization has literally seen people without an address come to Jesus, um, not in the church building, but underneath bridges. Uh, for the last eight years, we have advocated on behalf of people experiencing homelessness, trying to correct the false narratives that persist about what it means to be poor, um, and extending welcome uh, and community for those experiencing homelessness. We've helped people uh, recover identification cards and get access to showers and uh, stable housing and uh, wrap a community around persons, helping them to develop employable job skills, helping people to get access uh, to jobs. We've seen uh, hundreds of people reunite with family members. Um, there's a story I tell of a a guy in a recently uh, released docu-series that we released called Find Your Why, a uh, guy that we walked with out of the issue of homelessness. He went from corporate America to uh, being homeless for about six years. Our organization wrapped a community around him, um, uh, having, causing him to, you know, recover his identification cards, you know, reunite with his own children, uh, seeing him uh, take practical steps back into stability. Uh, but people get a chance to really see the underpinnings of what it takes to actually help someone escape homelessness. Mm -hmm. Because it's just not like handing a person a meal. It's more getting into the messiness of their lives and really showing up and being proximate and present uh, for a sustained amount of time. And sometimes that takes a while and sometimes it happens quickly. Um, but it is the call that we embody as an organization to show up and continuously live uh, as Jesus did and dwell among people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Love Sinks In uh, was born out of the crisis of COVID-19. 
um, it was March of last year when our organization started to literally have all of the, all the fears that everyone else was having. What is this? This was long before it was labeled. Um, we're in a pandemic, right? Uh, what is this virus? Is it real? I mean, all of those concerns until we started to see, um, you know, states and cities started to, you know, cause people to shut down their buildings and their businesses and, uh, you know, tell people they need to stay at home and quarantine. Uh, but yet we saw this growing need and more visible disparities popping up all around the country. Not to say that disparities haven't already existed, but um, people have, were in this state where they were paused long enough where they had to pay attention to their neighbors' disparities. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in the office and a guy named Dimitri walked in and he's literally in tears, doesn't have an address. He says, the libraries are closed. I use that to access technology and to see what's going on in the world. I can't go into public places and the restaurants are shutting down. I don't know if I'm going to make it because I don't have anywhere to wash my hands. They keep telling me I need to wash my hands and I don't have access to running water. And while people were fighting over toilet paper and paper towels, uh, we were thinking of a creative way to get access, uh, people experiencing homelessness, access to this basic necessity of sanitation, soap and water uh, to be able to protect themselves in the most basic way, because this is what the CDC was telling us to do. And I started to think about the life of Jesus uh, when he was saying this, because Jesus um, kneeled down and washed mm -hmm. his disciples' feet. Mm -hmm. And I saw this as being synonymous with creating an idea where we wasn't, we weren't washing feet, but we could wash hands or provide at least the basic necessities so people can perform, perform these behaviors. And we started with uh, five. Uh, my friend Lecrae jumped in. Uh, we had grown to 15 sinks. Uh, we started placing hand washing stations or these sinks in the streets or whatever, underneath bridges in alleyways, et cetera. And then um, we grew even more to 50 sinks or hand washing stations around the cities and public parks and partnership with churches where uh, people experiencing homelessness frequent, be able to access and wash their hands. And uh, the story spread, man, and it uh, went viral. And then we had all these companies uh, come on board, like Bronny Paper Towels and Porsche and Southwest Airlines and AtV and the NFL Foundation and all of these um, partners that we amassed. And we grew this campaign to uh, 67 cities around the country. Mm. And on any given week, we had over 30,000 people washing their hands and having access to uh, basic soap and water and sanitation. And so that was the heartbeat of Love Sinks In. It was born out of this idea of we've been doing this work, but now we find ourselves in a moment where things are shutting down and we've been centralized. So how do we pivot and become more decentralized so we can continue to show up for those people whom God loves. Mm. And so that's how we arrived at, you know, the campaign that we're in called Love Sinks In. Mm. Man, I love it. I love it. Uh, that that uh, conversation about, about homelessness, you know, I think most, well, depending on where you live, most people live near enough to a city. Uh, 
where we 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 see folks without an address regularly uh, we see we see um people on street corners holding up cardboard signs um and i wanted to just pick your brain a little bit on your your expertise on this we, we just got a few minutes left and so um i i have all the time we need i just want to honor your time uh and and, and you being on here um which I'm very yeah. thankful for, but I wanted to get just some practical ideas uh, from you, even for myself. Just um, when when we see somebody holding up, so this is just a, it's a kind of a hard transition from what you just said. It's not a, it's not a exact. It's just a question I wanted to ask you. Um, I've done a lot, a decent amount of work with homeless folks in Grand Rapids, uh, where we would just hang out with folks, you know, living under bridges and we just build relationships and bring food and, 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 um, people that hold up signs, uh, on the, uh, the corner, you know, and, 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 and at a red light kind of thing. I think that's pretty common nowadays. I'm just curious what your, what your advice is, what your thoughts are. Um, is there, is there a real concern that, you know, if I give this person money, they're going to spend it on an addiction, you know, sort of thing. Is it, is it okay to ask that without it feeling like a stereotype or a judgment, you know, um, do you, I don't know. I just, I'm, I, I just, I, I wrestle with it. I wrestle with even what to say to my kids, you know, when we pull up and, and I just, uh, I'm curious your thoughts for, uh, for listeners on, and, and for me even on that, that specific interaction, um, with somebody on a, on yeah. a street corner. <clears throat> That's really good. Um, do you mind if I respond with a, a story? Go for it. Yeah, so it's probably maybe four years ago. Um, we were in the heart of the city, uh, metropolitan city, probably sim- similar to a lot of cities around the uh, country that have higher populations of people experiencing homelessness. And our son, our children are in the backseat. I'm with my wife. And my son, who is six at the time, starts to cry. Um, My wife was on her cell phone. I was jamming to my favorite tunes. Uh, My daughter was playing on her smart device. And uh, everybody, like, paused and looked at our our son. And we said, what's going on, man? And um, he looks over at this guy who is standing (laughs) on the corner holding the sign he says, I'm, I'm sad because um, this guy doesn't have a home and uh, um, I care about all of the poor people. It's something he just kind of said in a very cute way because he had been a part of the work that we've been doing since he was a kid. And instead of like locking the doors, rolling up the windows, turning my head, um, I said, hey, buddy, do you want to say something to him like that, which is something that uh, many parents would probably advise against. So I call the guy over to the car and I say, hey, man, I introduced myself. I have some things that I want to share with you. But before then, uh, my son wants to say something. So I let the guy walk around the car. I kind of roll down the windows just a a tad. My son uh, hops up out of his seat and he says, I just want to let you know I care about you 
And he says, I, I love all the poor people. He didn't know what to say, but he said it. And the guy starts smiling and uh, laughing. And he says, this is the first time people have stopped and like acknowledged my existence all day. Um, I go, you know, hours on end with people just kind of looking the other way, et cetera. We know the stories. Um, but I lift up this story because in the car, I had a few things with me. One, I had uh, an information sheet um, with me that contained a lot of the resources uh, that sometimes people don't understand are around them because of a lack of technology or lack of information, et cetera. So I make sure I keep a short list of things uh, in the car that I can advise people to go to. And then I'll spend time say, hey, do you know uh, this is right here or this is right there or this is right here? and I'm able to uh, guide people in that way. Uh, secondly, I also keep uh, a bag of things. Um, it's just a practice that my family has, uh, things that are least donated, uh, like socks and underwear and, um, you know, Marta bus passes, which is a public transportation system in the city of Atlanta, all of those sorts of things where at least I could extend information and also be like a, a real resource and if I feel comfortable after talking with a person, um, I have been known to give money. Do I always do that? No, I don't. But I am led by my discernment and uh, led by the narrative and the story that I feel may or may not be true. And the reason I say that is because um, there is this stereotype about people experiencing homelessness. And I, I need us to understand that we need to strip labels from people uh, because if I didn't have a truck, you wouldn't call me truckless, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are people who have homes who abuse just as many drugs who are just addicted to uh, many substances and who are also wrestling with mental health issues because those are the go-to uh, things to kind of bring up when we talk about this issue. I think we need to get back to uh, centering personhood and affirming the very Imago day in, in person's experience in homelessness uh, and uh, giving people the opportunity to have preferences as well. That just because you live on a, a street corner does not mean that you don't have something to offer or that you don't have a choice in your own uh, direction and journey, right? Uh, it's like what my friend Tyrus would say. He says, when I'm on a street corner, um, sometimes when people fear me, it does damage to my self-worth. Mm. This is the other side of fear he's talking about. He, say, he says, I'm a brother, I'm a son, I'm an uncle, you know, I'm a friend. I'm more than what you see. And as long as we push past our stereotypes and uh, really center people, I think we can make some really valuable connections and noticing people, but also provide people with practical, basic things that we keep with us. Yeah, that's helpful. It's I like it's it's very practical as well. It's a it's a yeah I I love it. What what yeah it's just what do you. Sometimes we are unable to help people because we don't even know what's around us to help people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes your greatest gift to a person, even if you can't physically get them out of the issue of homelessness yourself, is just being 
a resourceful person. Uh, when I was working on uh, one of my uh, master's degrees, I, I got a, a degree in uh, clinical counseling. Uh, we had a whole entire class on just being a resourceful person, hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and resourcefulness is just sharing information that could be helpful and useful to other people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's really helpful. And I think, you know, we have those short term, those quick, you know, you're in the car, it's a red light. You have a quick few seconds and might be able to give, give a bag to somebody. Uh, and then also there's times when you have opportunity for a much longer conversation and, and much longer connection. And uh, that's, that's really important. And I think, as a pastor, I'm really passionate about churches being places where that relational support and connection uh, can be given to anybody. And if somebody comes in that uh, doesn't have a home and, and, and they might be wrestling with a lot of these issues, I sure hope that our churches are places where people can come in and, and be welcomed into community and, you know, I, I think for Christians to hear, you don't have to do it all. There, there are really good there are really good nonprofits out there. There are really good programs out there. Uh, but what the church does really well is it creates family. It creates stability. It creates di- or not creates dignity. It affirms dignity. That's already there. Right. And uh, I've seen that. I've seen that where in, in our church in Lansing, where we had homeless people coming to church and they they were in the programs, but the, the there wasn't a re, not to say all programs aren't relational, but 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 uh, some are, some aren't. They were in some programs, and they were kind of treated as a number. And in our space, they were just treated as family, and they just kept coming back. And and what do you know? Within six or twelve months, they actually had an apartment, and they uh, they had employment. And we didn't give those things to them, but we we gave them the the spiritual and the relational intimacy and love that they needed. Uh, and and then the rest of the stuff clicked. Then the rest of the stuff worked. Uh, and and um, I think that's something the church is is uniquely equipped to do. Uh, so I'll, I'll give that as an encouragement to to listeners as well, because it can be overwhelming if you feel like, how can I get this person in an apartment? Well, you don't have to. There are organizations that specialize in that. But what you can do is is treat them uh, as a brother or a sister. Man, that's powerful. I didn't get a chance to share my personal story, but hopefully people will pick up when we stand. Yeah, uh, I experienced homelessness as a teenager. Uh, one of my mentors, who was a pastor, uh, uh, Mr. Moore, he passed away the first year I started Love Beyond Walls. But I'll never forget him uh, modeling that very same thing. His entire church was made up of persons experiencing homelessness, um, where he extended the table, they broke bread, they studied, but he was there uh, to offer community and support. And you'll never, you'll never know the power of community until a person's life is transformed in that community. And they find the encouragement to continue to move forward in their journey. Mr. Moore will never know that I'm talking to you, Noah, <laughs> until I'm, I see him again. Mm. Um, um, or the persons that will hear this. But he was someone who saw me. Uh, invited me into his community and my life was transformed. And I think this is what you're lifting up 
as we talk about the power of church, because I, I do believe that uh, the church is the hope of the world and that we have a unique opportunity to in, invite people into that community, that life-giving community, yeah. uh, to have their lives change. Mm. I love it. Well, hey, man, I I want to give you a chance to give a, a closing thought, a closing word uh, to the audience. I, I went over my time of what I told you we would be, and, and, and I really appreciate you coming on and hanging out uh, with the Flipside audience. Thank you for writing When We Stand. I hope that listeners uh, pick it up. Yeah. Want to just give you a chance, man. We've we've covered a lot of ground. It's been rich. It's been really, really good. Uh, just yeah. a cl- closing thought that you have for us. Yeah, I have a closing uh, thought, but it is in the form of a uh, words of a prayer that I wrote, and it says, uh, "Lord, forgive us for putting conflict over compassion, competition over concern." Grind over gratitude, fame over faithfulness, ego over seeing others, relevance over realness, platforms over people, and bitterness over building people up. Mm-hmm. And that is truly my heart. And I hope uh, that the words in the book and the way that you know, I live my life and brothers and sisters who are a part of the family of God live their life, um, live it in such a way that it points uh, to a to a God who is able to restore, redeem and transform uh, this world. And, you know, standing together with other people also requires a huge um, factor of humility, right, um, that we all have been extended uh, fellowship into the family of God, but we are also given the opportunity to humble ourselves uh, to display uh, the glorious love of God. And so that is my hope. Mm. That's what I would love to uh, close with. Mm. Amen. Amen to your prayer as well. That was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, man. All right. All right. Flip side. Welcome back to the podcast. Wow. What a great conversation with Terrence Lester. So deep and good and I love I love those conversations. I come alive during those conversations. I hope you can see how everything we talked about connects back to Jesus. And we we talked about some some convicting things. Some depending on how you use the word some prophetic things. When I say prophetic I don't mean predictive. I mean, in the Old Testament context, you you had the prophet who, whether it was Isaiah, Jeremiah, whoever it might be, and the, the prophet would speak truth to the king. So the, the, the king is out of line with what scripture says, and the prophet would come and say, hey, king, you're out of line. And it often had to do with injustice. It, would, it had to do with idolatry, and it had to do with injustice. And we still, we, we need an ear in 2021. We need an ear to hear the voice of the prophet. We need an ear, because usually the king in the Old Testament, if you know your Bible stories, usually the king didn't listen. <laughs> usually the king went on rebelling. Usually the king persecuted the prophet. So prophets were killed in the Old Testament. 
prophets were thrown into wells. Uh, prophets were, were put into stocks. Uh, prophets weren't treated kindly by the king when this message was delivered. And I think it's human nature. It's, it's the, that pride and stubbornness that we have. I think some of it is that that political conversation that I talked about where we go, you, you're, you just offended my political tribe. Therefore, you're the enemy. Therefore, you're this, this, and this. We can't, I, I didn't get a chance to talk to Terrence about this because we just, we covered so much ground already. But we, what happens is, and, and I'll throw out some buzzwords, and I did it in the interview, Black Lives Matter, critical race theory. And, and you, you, we go, well, I don't agree with 100% of that thing. And so if you, if you come at me with, with any part of that thing, you, I might not agree with 100% of that thing either. But I, if, if, if I come at you with a concept or principle that that thing talks about, but you are, you are taught and trained by your lens to dismiss all of that. You're sort of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We, we, th- we no longer have an ear to listen. That's my point in this, is we, we lose our ear to listen because we, we are so convinced that our, our way, our method, our tribe is correct and is correct about everything. And that's the danger of it's a big word and I'm not sure I say it right homogeneity homogenous I can say homogenous <laughs> this is in the serious part of the podcast so I'm not supposed to be making jokes but homogen <laughs> I can't say it homogenous homogenous I know how to say homogenous that's how you say it homogenous I don't know how to say it with the entity on it okay Back to being serious. The it's hard for me. It is, guys. It's hard for me to be serious all the time. We're gonna get to the silly part later. Who and who uses the word silly? I just can't think of a better word. Okay. The danger of homogenous environments is it's uh, Terrence called it confirmation bias. We are born and raised with biases. <laughs> And that that shouldn't be news to us. That's part of the human condition. And so that's why it is so important to be in proximity. And Terrence talks quite a bit about proximity in When We Stand. It's so important to be in proximity with people that are different from you, to be in real community with people that are different from you. And that's really when we begin to learn. No matter what the subject is, think of any people group that is different than yours. It could be Muslims. It could be Democrats. It could be Republicans. It could be LGBTQ people. It could be black people, white people, Latinx people, Chinese people. It could be, it could be anyone who's different from you. And, and you have preconceived biases about them. We typically have people that look like us who have told us what to think about people like them, let alone men and women, to, to bring gender into the conversation. 
And then we get trained on these 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 knee-jerk reaction to buzzwords about, oh, no, and now you're just getting all woke. Now you're getting, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you're, you're getting too woke on us, Noah. You're, you're, you're exchanging the gospel with, with social justice. If you listen to the interview with Terrence, that's not what we're doing. We're, we're, we're really trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to follow what Jesus said and, and modeled what he did. What he di- I talked about that with David Swanson. Uh, I don't know, several episodes ago. I don't I don't have it in front of me what, what number that was. I'll try to find it. But uh, Swanson, in his book, Rediscipling the White Church, he makes a really good point about discipleship. And he talks about what it would have meant to be a disciple of Jesus to follow a rabbi. And it's not about sitting in a classroom learning cognitive facts. Well, cognitive facts are important and and. And, and theology certainly is important, but theology should lead you to action. It's, it leads you to, to do things, right? And Jesus as a rabbi, it was the things he taught, but also the things he did. And his disciples would have followed him around and they would have, they would have looked and said, what is he doing? How is he eating? I want to eat like him. How is he walking? I want to walk like him. How is he treating the rich? I want to treat the rich like he does. How is he treating the poor? I want to treat the poor like he does. How is he treating Samaritans? I want to treat Samaritans like he does. So it's episode 36. That's the interview with David Swanson if you want more on that. And so so my my sort of commentary here uh, to close out the the interview and and the the serious part of the podcast. My commentary is do you have ears to listen? Do you have ears to listen to the voice of the Old Testament prophet? It doesn't mean Terence or I have the authority of an Old Testament prophet. I'm just saying we are we are attempting to, to lead the church in that similar sort of way of, of asking some of these hard questions and, and asking us to humble ourselves and to examine our, our, our confirmation biases, to examine the biases that we were born into, and to examine where we're not in proximity with other people and to get in proximity with other people. There are many ways to do that. When We Stand talks about many of those ways. You can go to your downtown. You can walk up to a homeless person. And for, for better or worse, homeless people are very approachable. Uh, and and you, what, what I mean is if you, if you walked up to, I don't know, an average rich person, you might, get, they might file a lawsuit on you for, for stalking them or harassing them. I mean, homeless people... And, and 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 I'm catching myself. I I know I know Terrence used people without addresses, which I like. I like. I, I'm I have language embedded into my vocabulary. If you you walk up to a person without an address, our society has shunned them so much that they really are open to any conversation mo- most of the time. Most of the time, in my in my anecdotal experience, they're really open to to any showing of love. That, that embraces the dignity that, that they have as image bearers. And you can have great conversations. They might want money, but you can offer to go out to lunch with them. And 
you can you can just hear their story. You can spend time with them. You can get to know them. And and I would say I would say to be cautious. Yeah, be cautious. Uh, you, you, don't don't judge all homeless people. Don't judge all people without an address based on experience uh, with with some or even most maybe in your anecdotal experience. Uh, but but be cautious. Don't don't give money a lot of money. You know don't. Um, there's a lot of really good resources. There's a lot of really good really good nonprofits that you have to. You, you might need an advocate to help you connect with, but but what you can do is is get to know someone. You can befriend someone. You can befriend someone without an address. That's a way to have proximity. When I was in college, uh, my roommate and I would go downtown to Grand Rapids, and we would well we would we would bring food from the cafeteria, so we would get to go food in bags, and we would use the food as just a way to look. We were eighteen and nineteen years old. Okay, so. If we can do it, you can do it. And we would we would just start conversations with food. Hey, do you want a sandwich? You know, we would make some sandwiches uh, from the cafeteria. And we, hey, what's your name? Uh, you know, my name is this. Uh, tell, you know, tell me about yourself. And, and we would just get to know people's names. We would play chess. Uh, we, would, we would just hang out. We would play cards. And we just went down once a week. We did the same thing once a week. We started bringing three guys to church every week. We'd pick them up under the bridge. We drive him to church, way out. wasn't even the suburbs; it was past the suburbs. We were out in the rural, a rural town in this church plant that we attended, and then we would drive him back uh, to our college. We would eat lunch with him, and then we would we would go back downtown with them and and drop them off wherever they wanted. And that's just what we did. You don't have to do that. I'm just telling you, there's an openness and an, an accessibility to that. I think you can only do one or two things really well. So pick your thing. But get in proximity, volunteer, volunteer at a nonprofit that that serves a demographic that is different than you. Proximity is so, so, so important. We need to exercise our muscles of listening to people that are different from us. And for those of you that choose to attend churches where you are around people that are the same as you, you, you are choosing to not exercise those muscles. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, again, villainizing or demonizing that. I'm just making an observation that's true. You're, you're not exercising that muscle. So what you need to do is you need to get out and exercise that muscle. You need to find ways to exercise the muscle of being in proximity with people that are different from you. Church can be a great place to do that. If you're not doing that at church, find a place to do that. I just gave you a few ways and a few examples of how to do that. So I hope this is really practical. I hope that it's helpful to you in in following Jesus. This is the reality of the gospel connecting with the grit of life. That's what this is about. That's what the flip side is about, following Jesus in this way. All right, you hear that sound? That is the new sound on the flip side when it, it, I am warning you that all serious talk is, is over. So we're, we're shifting, we're trying something new, we're trying to help the people out that do not want to listen to Noah's rant, that do not want to listen to banter about what is going on uh, in the world. This is your, your warning. It was very, it was very hard to find an alarm warning 
that did not sound like an extremely annoying alarm clock. That I could do a rant on in and of itself. Before I do that, and in future episodes, I will do this prior to the alarm that tells you to stop listening. I do want to say quickly that the flip side is brought to you by Angry Brew. And I'm drinking my Angry Brew right now. It is delicious. Angry Brew. I I always want to say the tagline is uh, a punch in the face. That is not the tagline. It is coffee with a punch. Coffee with a punch. Angry Brew. It has double the caffeine of normal coffee. It is a wonderful supporter of this podcast, keeps the podcast going. So a way you can help, a way you can support the podcast is to buy Angry Brew and use the promo code FLIP, F-L-I-P. You'll get 10% off your order at angrybrew.com or fivelakes.com. So we really appreciate you supporting Angry Brew and using our promo code, and we appreciate Angry Brew supporting the podcast. So uh, with that, again, hey, it's free time now, right? I mean, any anyone now, they've been warned. They, they, even, they even have their own warning sound effect to say, hey, it's, it's time to stop listening. We did the interview first. Do you know how hard that was for me? That was really hard at the beginning of the episode as I welcome in the flip eponymi. I don't I don't know if I can keep that up. It still took me over four minutes to get to the interview. So it wasn't like I even did a good job of getting to the interview. But I did it. It was very hard. And I'm, I'm going to try to keep doing that. I'm going to try. There, There's probably days when you don't want to hear me smack my gums about stupid stuff you just you're listening because you want to hear what the topic is about like i want to hear terrence lester i want to hear a conversation about race and about justice and about jesus that's what i want to hear noah okay so that's what we're going to try to do trying to give you that first speaking of things that i that i could rant about let me just say i hate it i absolutely hate it whenever i hear an alarm clock in a in a movie in a TV show, I will never do that to you. I commit right now. You know, sometimes on Noah's rant, I do annoying sounds when I talk about someone chewing with their mouth open. I have playing behind my rant on chewing with mouth open the sound of someone chewing with their mouth open, just to dis, just to. This is hard to say. I'm gonna work work on my diction here. Just to disgust you. Just to disgust you. Uh, I do that. I do that because I like to torment you. I I like to use my power as a podcast host to torment you with disgusting or annoying sounds. I promise you, I will never do that to you with an alarm clock sound. It is the absolute worst TV show movie. When you do that, off. Turn off. I cannot listen. I, I, that is the worst sound in the world. I have to hear it every morning. Interrupts my beautiful sleep. PTSD, I don't want to hear it. So I found you a nice soothing alarm to warn you to stop listening. So for those of you that are still listening, for whatever absurd reason you you might continue, let's talk about last episode. Episode 50 was the the 50th uh, episode celebration where where Travis, shout out Travis, T-Rav, T-Rav, the, the master editor, put together every Noah's rant that ever existed all into one episode for you to listen to for five hours. 
it is uh, basically a free audiobook. It is a free stand-up comedy act that's not very good. But uh, it, it's, the, it's, it's not that the content is hilarious. It's hilarious that we, that we did it. It's hilarious that we put 50 episodes worth of Noah's Rant into one episode. It's over five hours. Just that, that it exists. That's, that's the hilarious part. So a few things I didn't mention that I, that I want to mention. It's not 50 Noah's Rants because I don't always do them. Uh, and I, I'm curious as you go through. So I, I do have a challenge for those of you, uh, anyone crazy enough to listen to all 50 episodes, email the show, podcast at beyondthebattle.net. Tell me your favorite two and your least favorite one. So you can give me your favorite two or three and your least favorite one or two and some commentary on those. And the first person to do that, uh, you will you have earned, that's right, Bob, you've earned a free pre-release copy of Beyond the Battle. So that's it's all I got. It's all I got to give away is a free copy of Beyond the Battle, the new one, the new Beyond the Battle, which comes out August 10th. You can get your hands on a pre-release copy. I will ship that to you to the first person that emails. You can also email the show anything. Podcast at beyondthebattle.net. The mailbag has been a little bit lonely. A little lonely recently. So feel free to email uh, serious stuff, funny stuff. I like to interact with your emails and answer them on the show. But my but Noah's rant, if you do try to listen, I hope it's just funny. I hope you enjoy it. I know some people listen while they're working out and and I and I love your emails about Noah's rant cuz trust me. So here's what I know is when I first started Noah's rant, I mean it took a while to own Noah's rant. It took a while to go I'm making an utter fool of myself and I'm a pastor and this is supposed to be a serious podcast about Jesusy things. It took a while to own it. And so as we as you go through from from one through fifty, though there's not that many, I'm curious how many there are. Someone count those up for me and let me know. That would be helpful. But it's probably thirty some, in the mid thirties. Uh, as as the the later they go, the more confident I get in those rants. So the, I think the louder I get, the little bit wilder and crazier that I get. So if you listen to the first few and they seem kind of dry, hang in there. Fast forward, skip skip to the end. And, and so, yeah, those are my thoughts on Noah's rant. We do have a Noah's rant today. So there, there was a time when I was running out of ideas. I asked you for ideas. You sent ideas. Uh, I haven't used any of your ideas yet, but I was inspired. I was inspired by your ideas. And I, I have ideas now, which is, which is really good. So, so without further ado, episode 51, 51, I've already given you the disclaimer not to listen so you're already listening. The moment you've been waiting for, for those that are still listening, episode 51, Noah's Rant. Noah's Rant! Okay, so I went to the zoo recently with my family. The zoo. The zoo, <laughs> the zoo, the zoo, the zoo. It was 86 degrees at the zoo. Why, why were we at the zoo? Good question. Why is anybody at the zoo? Okay, 
we'll get there. We are at the zoo because my girls, my daughters, are in Girl Scouts, and this was their end of the Girl Scout season celebration. It was their graduation. They 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 got their new vests for the next year of Girl Scouts. So so this was a planned party at the zoo. It was 86 degrees and sunny at the zoo. Now, I live in Michigan. Uh, you, you listening may not. You might live in Florida where it's 86 degrees all the time. And you say, what's the big deal? Suck it up. Uh, I don't like 86 degrees. 86 degrees with humidity is miserable. And let me tell you this, I, I live in Michigan, God put me here, and we have brutal winters. So we typically have nice summers, we typically have cool summers, 70s, not super humid, but we always get some nasty weeks of humidity. And when they come, I go, man, I I don't deserve this. I, I live in Michigan. for We have winter nine months out of the year. I want my good, cool, temperate summer weather. So we get these hot, humid days. Just stay inside in the air conditioning if you have it. But no, no, not me. I'm at the zoo. 86 degrees, and it is hot. And let me tell you this. I'm 38 years old. 38. You know, I'm in a reflective season of life. I'm reflecting on my younger years. And I look back at my younger years. I used to like going to the zoo. Before my wife and I had kids, we would go to the zoo as a date. When we traveled to different cities, we would usually go to that city's zoo. Let me tell you what, I, I am zooed out. Having kids makes you zooed out. I've been to the zoo so many times. You you go to the zoo and you you know what you see at the zoo? You see the exact same thing you saw the last time you went to the zoo. Nothing changes. You you see sad, depressed animals that are in prison. <laughs> you see birds given the gift of flight by God, that are stuck under a net or cage so that gawkers can walk by and and point at them. You see wild cats of massive monstrous proportions that are designed by God to roam the prairie and to hunt their prey, and, and they are stuck in a, in a small little dirt pad with fake plastic rocks and they're and they're fed you know raw hamburgers out of, out of a out of a bucket and, and and that's the highlight of their day so these these sad depressed look I know zoo people I know animal people zoos help endangered species zoos get those animals that can't go back in the wild zip it save it this is Noah's rant there there is really no room for your logic and your sensibilities in Noah's rant. I already told you to stop listening if you were logical, sensible, had common sense, all this, you shouldn't be listening anyway. So I don't, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Zoos, 
They're they're filled with these sad, depressed animals. And it doesn't matter what zoo you go. Oh, go to this zoo. I've been to all of them. I've been to every zoo. They're all the same. They've all got the monkeys. They've all got the cats. Oh, but this zoo has elephants. Great. You know what the elephants do? The same thing every other animal at the zoo does. Nothing. They just sit there smelling bad, eating and pooping. That's what they do. That is not very interesting. There are no rides at the zoo. There, you know what's at the zoo? Really overpriced food is at the zoo. And sad, depressed animals are at the zoo. And sunburn is at the zoo. And sweating through your underwear is at the zoo. So, I'm at the zoo in Grand Rapids. Not having not having a great time. Trying trying to be a champion dad. In fact, having dreams about Noah's rant. Going, thank you, Lord, for Noah's rant. That I know why you've sent me to the zoo. It's to give me material for Noah's rant. And so, therefore, I am grateful for this miserable experience so that I can have my own personal therapy session on Noah's rant and tell my throngs of listeners all about it. So I'm at the zoo thinking about Noah's rant. My children are looking at the lions. I am not making this up. Boy lion, girl lion. My children are nine, seven, and three years old. Boy... (laughs) Boy lion. Oh, here's the spot where I have to pause and say, Noah, you are a pastor. Noah, you have a public podcast. You just did this very serious interview with Terrence Lester. He might still be listening. (laughs) Use your words very carefully here, Noah. Even though it's Noah's rant, even though you gave all these warnings, Please don't act like a seventh grade boy. It's very hard not to act like a seventh grade boy. I'm going to try. I just want you all to know. I'm going to try. I may not do it well. I expect you to show me grace because you are a Christian who believes in grace. You've been changed by grace. Uh, You've been shown grace. You are commanded by God to show grace to others. So, I continue with my story. (laughs) I'm trying. I'm going to try. Boy Lion decides to get on the back of Girl Lion in front of my children. So, so, you know, Boy Lion, he's, he wants to be a dad. You know, he wants to be a dad. He wants to have baby lions. And, uh, you know, Boy Lion gets up on the back of Girl Lion. Because, you know, I wrote a book called Beyond the Battle, A Man's Guide to His Identity in Christ in an Oversexualized World. And uh, my hope is that boy line and girl line are married, right? If not, my boy needs to read my book. I do believe Zondervan is making a, a lion translation. That's a bad joke. That was a, that was a dad joke. That was a bad joke. But you got it. You got it anyway. So I hope my boy reads the book. Because, uh, look, look, boy lion, I'm not judging you, man. You know, 
We all got our struggles. This is a place of grace. But you you need to get a room, my friend. You, you need to get a room because my kids are nine and seven and three. And, and, and my kids look at me and they go, Dad, what, what are the lions doing? What are those lions doing over there? Uh, we we have not had the talk yet with my children. <laughs> my three girls. So you know you know what I said. My answer was, "Hey girls, come over here with me <laughs> behind this wall where you cannot see the lions." And thankfully, girl girl lion, she 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 and I want to choose my words carefully here. Help me, Lord. Help me. Help me. I'm reaching out. I'm reaching out for help. J- the book of James says, when you need wisdom, you ask the Lord and he will give it to you. Lord, I need wisdom here. I, I'm. This is all you. It's if, if I don't show wisdom here, God, it's your fault because I just asked for it. The girl, the girl lion, she was, she was, uh, she was not giving boy lion the time of day. The girl lion was not in the mood. She said, get, get back up off me. Get back up off me, bro. What do you think this is? This is a public place. There's children watching. She walked away. She walked away. She walked away. I'm just going to leave it there. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen for that wisdom that I asked for. And that was the end of that. And we moved on. We went and got some dipping dots after that. (laughs) That's the answer to that question. Hey, hey, Dad, what are those lions doing? Who wants dipping dots? (laughs) <laughs> I, oh, they, they got cookies and cream. They got cookies and cream. <laughs> that's, a, that's a parenting lesson right there for you. That's a parenting lesson. <laughs> so that, that pretty much wraps up my, my rant about the zoo. I, I hate zoos. I'm just going to say it. I used to like zoos. I do not like zoos anymore. I have been to the zoo so many times. I think God wired us to go to the zoo maybe once every three years. So when you go, you go, oh, yeah, that's what a giraffe looks like. Oh, cool. They got a purple tongue. Oh, yeah, that's what elephants smell like. Woo, that's real bad. God God designed you to go to the zoo every three years so you could sort of enjoy remembering things again. That that should last you till you're 90 years old at that pace. I've we went to the zoo, so don't ever get a pass to the zoo. You will be done and ruined. You will your your gas tank will be empty. You'll have nothing left. Young parents, pace yourself. Do not go to the zoo as a date when you do not have kids. Because you will be at the zoo for the next 20 years once you start having kids. And that's what I did, and now I'm ruined. Now I look back on my life and I and, and I am full of regrets. I say, I've went to the zoo way too much. I overindulged in the zoo and now I hate the zoo. And and now I I I, 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 I my, my my Noah's rant is going out to the zoo saying, Zoo, you got you gotta help me out. Now now I'm in trouble in my marriage because I don't like the zoo anymore. I'm in trouble with my kids because I don't like the zoo anymore. So I need some prayer. I need some prayer. I need some zoo recovery therapy. And Noah's rant exists to make the world a better place. That that is why Noah's rant 
exists. And and I think I think we made that happen today. I don't know how. I'm not sure how this rant made the world a better place, but it did. It 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 it, it warned you to pace yourself. Pace yourself. Pace yourself on your zoo visits because you will live a life full of regrets like me uh, if you if you abuse going to the zoo to see the poor, depressed, pathetic animals uh, too often. So with that, that wraps up episode 51 of The Flip Side. I will see you next time on The Flip Side. The Flip Side with Noah Filipiak is a South Francis Press production. Copyright Noah Filipiak, www.noahfilipiak.com. Theme music by Kyle Lake at K Lake Music, used with permission. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever podcasts are found. Y'all, y'all, dripping in that gold that don't perish. People selling fake, see the green around their belly. Taking refuge in his hand, see his poems, my living quarters. Close them when I'm finished, it's time to bring me closer. There's no purgatory, cause you're in or you're out. When you see them in the clouds, then you know it's going down. Raise them, raise them, raise them. They've been sleeping for some ages. Now all God's babies so confused by this hatred. Poor pit preachers shouldn't aim to be A-list. Money probably long, but short is with your days. Have you ever heard the sound of freedom? Pitt preachers shouldn't aim to be A-list Money probably long, but sure it's with your